we typically are people who think we like liberty. And we're Americans, so we're very big in liberty. But I've come to realize that we're actually not as interested in liberty as we think we are. At least spiritually. Like, what does it mean to be a free person? What we're actually interested in is autonomy. Autonomy means self-rule. We want self-rule. Now, autonomy and liberty are not the same thing. See, liberty comes when power is given from another to give us freedom. That's liberty. You're living within another's power. But autonomy says, I will live within my own power. And what we quickly realize is those who choose the route of autonomy, who want their own authority and power in life, end up becoming slaves to someone or something else. Even if it's their own desire. See, liberty is different because liberty always comes with some some rule or command that feels like a limitation. But really, when you look deep down within, that so-called rule, that limiting restriction, is actually there to put you on the path of greater liberty. It's showing you where slavery starts and liberty ends. So, we're going to see that in the Bible here. Um, and I want us to acknowledge real quick that we really are monsters who want everything. And because of that, we actually consume our own desires. So, as you see on the board, this is going to be the story of idolatry, as told in the Bible. Um, We are in Isaiah, and we will continue to be in Isaiah. But last week, we taught the idolatry sections of Isaiah, where he talks about the idols. You remember this? And I had an idol up here. I mean, really, you can make anything into an idol, but I had the Smurf. White baker's hat, blue-bellied, white pants and shoed, weird creature with elf ears that was about three feet tall and sat on the sofa here with me. And I asked it some questions, and it was a disaster because the guy wouldn't talk back to me. In fact, I have no proof that he even heard a a single thing I said to him. And so Isaiah tells us idols are like that. It seems ridiculous, and we made light of it. And Isaiah, in chapters 41, 44, and 46, makes light of idolatry. In literature, or in um, theater and art, you'd call this a satire. It's where you're just totally exaggerating and making fun of something to make a point. Now, after teaching that, I got a couple questions about some things. I thought, you know what? I think, actually, we'll just take a, we'll take a dive into idolatry through Scripture. What does Scripture have to say from beginning to end? So this is what you call, in your academic circles, you call this biblical theology. And it's where you develop a theology about a subject, not by taking the subject and putting a lot of bullet points under it from everything Scripture says, but rather by tracing the subject in order from Genesis to Revelation and letting the story of the Bible unfold its meaning. So, um, as I dug into this, I realized I was in way over my head. And so, you know, you start with an idea like, oh, can I actually talk about that for like 30 minutes? And then I found out I can't talk about this in less than three hours. So, I'm severely 
truncating this to some of the key verses, and maybe if you subscribe to the podcast, maybe depending on how this night goes, I will throw out some more, but tonight we're going to go through just a few of the portions through scripture, the story of idolatry, and why is it a big deal, and does it even matter still today? It does. It does. So tonight I've had to go hands-free, because we're going to be flipping through the Bible a little bit. And if you're not comfortable with that, just don't lose the message by trying and frustrating yourself to flip through pages. If you ever just feel like it's too much, just sit down and receive, okay? I don't want you to feel frustrated. But some of us are, we got the cheat tabs or what do they call them in Bible college, like Pharisee tabs. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I heard someone say it. Um, or you just know your Bible and you're just that holy, you know, whatever. You can go along. But let's start with Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So in the beginning, the earth was formless, and it was empty, and there was darkness. So God starts to shape it. And right here, we have something very similar to what idolatry is. I'm not likening the earth to an idol. Don't go there yet. But we see that God begins with shaping something that's shapeless. It doesn't have life, so he's going to put life in it. And it's dark, so he's going to turn on the lights. And if you read Genesis, you'll see that's precisely what happens in a very poetic and systematic way. Then you come to chapter 1, verse 24. And we're in the midst of the sixth day. And it's a very important day. It's actually verse 26. 126. Sixth day, very important day. It's as long as the first five days combined, so you know it's important because it's slowing down. And we read this, 26. God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And here we go. Second time he's saying this. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And he goes on and continues to say, I've given you everything. Okay. So important, because here, for six days, God has prepared a place for his crowning achievement, the humans. And Psalm chapter 8 is actually a commentary on this text. And it says that God gave humanity his glory. They were the chief, the crowning point of creation, and on them rested his glory. And then it goes on to reiterate in its own wording some of these commands here. Go and have dominion over these aspects of creation. Now, what we're most interested in here is when it says in verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image. And right here, we have the beginning of the storyline of idolatry. No, God is not in the business of making idols. That's not what we're saying. Nor are we saying that you or I are some deified hunk of creation that deserves worship. That's not it either. 
Don't think of that kind of idolatry right now. At the very beginning, we have to think of what it's telling us. God made an image of himself. He made an image of himself. The humans, man and woman together, are his image. And this word image is the exact same Hebrew word. There's many, by the way, but it's one of the Hebrew words that is used later in the Bible to talk about the images humans make of their other gods. So, we are the first image of God. Now, what does this mean that we're made in his image? What does this mean that we have become, in a way, his reflection, in a way, his idol? What does this mean? There's a lot of uninteresting conversation about this. I've heard the roundtables about it means that God, we have two legs like God, or we have free will like God, or we can think or speak or whatever like God. It's really uninteresting to me because we don't, just let the Bible tell you what it means. And then it's like really clear. Here's what it says. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So to be made in the image of God is to have a likeness to God. You see? Right there, we see, okay, the image of God means there's something very similar, there's something very connected with God here. Okay. That's where most people stop, and they start speculating. Just keep reading. What is that likeness? And let them have dominion. Dominion is an old word for rulership, for authority. When God made humans in his image, what he did was he made a creature, humans, who would bear his authority over the creation that he made. He would, we would bear his authority over the creation. That's the image of God. And that is why, later in the Bible, God goes berserk when humans make images of the creation. Because God's like, wait a minute, I already made an image. And if you're going to transfer that image into something else, you're transferring, you're transferring your vocation, your calling, your authority that I gave you, you're transferring it to that thing that you made. That's why in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, second commandment of the ten, God says, you shall not make any graven images. And then he goes in and names the aspects of creation. Why? Because we were to have dominion over them. Okay. So dominion. This doesn't mean that we are to abuse the creation. That we were to be the taskmasters. No. To be made in the image of God meant that he gave us his power to rule over the creation. But it also meant that we are not exactly like the other creatures he made. There's something different about us. So, we are like middlemen between God and creation. We were the first priests, if you will. We represented God's rule to the creation. We gave it order, we made stuff, and we said, good, let's, as he said, be fruitful, multiply, expand, and fulfill. We were presumably, who knows what this would have looked like if Adam and Eve had kept at it, but, you know, it would have kept growing and the potentials of creation would have been coming out and we would have seen God's given authority to us over it and what would we have done to creation? It would have been something beautiful. It would have been something better than we see now. Okay? 
But on the other end of this, as the priests, we were, so we're representing God's rulership, his kingdom to the creation, but we're also representing the creation to God, the king. And so the creation is his, and we're leading the creation to its maker. And we were to be the worship leaders of the creation. So we were to say, hey, we, we are representing God's authority, we're taking care of you, now let's bring the praises of the one who made us back to him. Do you see where this is going? What we were supposed to do, we completely upended. Suddenly, authority wasn't enough. Because authority isn't autonomy. Authority is rule with me, God's saying. Rule with me. That's authority. I will give you my authority. Rule over creation with me. You have a good part in my kingdom. We wanted autonomy. We don't want to rule with you. We want to rule as you. That's autonomy. So, what happens? You know the story, I'm sure. The serpent smells our ambition. He knows our dissatisfaction. So he catches Adam and Eve near the very tree that God said you shall not eat from. We're in chapter 3 now, Genesis 3. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay, I love how Adam and Eve are near this tree. <laughs> it tells you right there that there's something in them that's wanting more than they have. The serpent doesn't have to be very smart, although it seems he is very smart, but you don't have to be very smart to catch on to the fact that they are looking for something more. Now, there are two trees, right? There's a tree of life. And then there's this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, eat from the tree of life and every other tree. You have freedom for all of it. Just don't eat this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That one little prohibition caused the humans with authority to say, wait a minute, what do you mean we don't have autonomy? One little tree, we must conquer it. The reason for these trees, God knows is that we need to depend on him. If we're going to keep his authority and live on the earth as his image, then we need his power. We're dependent upon his power. That's where it came from. So the tree of life was a place where we come in faith to receive from God. It was the act of saying, I am trusting in the king for this role he's given me over his good creation. And as long as we eat from the tree of life, we are practicing that submission to his authority. And we're co-ruling with him. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil stood as a symbol saying, you don't have to rule with God. Here you can be your own God. Here you can say, I don't want to be dependent on the king. I want to be independent of the king. I want to make my own declaration of independence. Worked out well for America. It doesn't work out well for you. And so here we see this tree is representing man's opportunity to say, no thank you, I want to rule as God. 
So, catch the phrasing, okay? In chapter 126, he said, let's make man in our image after our likeness. In chapter 3, it's not going to be a likeness to God. It's going to be like God. It's very different. So look at the serpent. Chapter 3, he's talking to the woman in verse 1, the middle of it. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? He's putting the negative spin. God said you may eat of everything. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. She's talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. (laughs) So there they are, right? They're talking underneath the shade of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the serpent, in verse 4, said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 5 is all the serpent needs. Your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Friends, we were made in the likeness of God. We were a reflection, an image of Him. But the serpent is saying, forget the likeness. Be Him. Be like Him. Now God in the Hebrews, Elohim, it's the same one that talked about God created the heavens and the earth. It's, inter- it's important to see this because what He's doing is He's telling them, you will be like God. You will have the same rule as God. Elohim is a broad term, it's a title, it's a broad title that refers to someone with authority to make decisions, to make laws, to make judgments. So the, the title was given to judges, to princes, to kings, to rulers, anyone who had authority to make decisions. And the serpent's saying, wait, wait, you you don't like the fact that your king gave you one little, you want to be autonomous, right? So cool. Eat of this tree, you will be your own Elohim. You will be your own God. And this is what it seems to me knowing good and evil means, is you will be the judge of what is good and evil. There's nothing wrong with knowing the difference between good and evil. There is something wrong with thinking you have the authority to determine what is good and evil. Now you see the temptation. This isn't just, this fruit's more beautiful. It's, I can have what I've always wanted. Autonomy. No one to tell me which way to go or how to do things. By the way, who's talking to them? Yeah, some throughout Satan, some throughout the serpent. We know later in the Bible that the serpent is Satan. But right now, to Adam and Eve, he's a serpent, right? That's what the text is telling us. They see a serpent. This is something they're supposed to have authority over. They're already not exercising the image of God. They're already on a downward spiral. And so they eat of it, right? And we immediately see things don't go well for the humans. Adam and Eve are going to have issues, we see. Cain and Abel, there's a little bit of a brotherly hatred there. And um, eventually, there's some weird sex going on in Genesis 6, and God has to flood the earth. And it says that everything they were imagining was always violence, 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 violence. Humanity was in a bad way. That's where this went. So, 
God has to rescue humanity out of this mess. Um, And what we learn right away is we needed God's power to have any authority. Autonomy wasn't enough. I don't have God's power inherent in myself. I'm just a creature who needs him. And so as soon as the humans said, nope, we don't want to be in the image of God, we want to redesign the world in our image, as soon as they said that, they lost their power. Thorns and thistles come up instead of fruit. Man and woman are no longer one as the image of God, but now the woman and the man fight with each other and have, as Genesis 3 says, they have controversy over who's going to rule over who. Children are going to have Um, are going to bring pain to their parents. The serpent won't be dominated by humans, but the serpent and the humans will have this tug of war. It gets bad. Murder, sexual violence, all over in the Bible, right? Then we come to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. God liberates Israel from Egypt. Because, right? If you don't want to be made in God's image, and you want to do this your way, you'll become a slave. Well, God rescues Israel from their slavery. By the way, Egypt is an idolatrous nation. Idols everywhere. In Exodus 12, 12, you know what it says? It says, this is the 10th plague about to happen. And God tells Moses in Exodus 12, 12, I'm about to bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. All the gods were going to be judged when the angel of death passed over Egypt and the firstborn died. Have you ever thought about this? All the gods were judged then. Because every Egyptian family devoted their firstborn to one of the gods of Egypt for their protection so that the inheritance can move on in their bloodline. Well, on one night, God made all the Egyptian gods look pretty powerless. And then, so he brings them in chapter 20, Exodus 20, to his own mountain, Mount Sinai, to give them, well, not just one law, but ten this time. (laughs) We need more protection against slavery. So look at Exodus 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before a single commandment is uttered, God says, Remember what I did for you. I brought you out of slavery. If you want to go back into slavery, do your own thing but I'm going to give you ten bumper pads, if you will, to keep you in the way of liberty. If you want to go back to slavery, break these. It's easy. But if you want to stay free, listen to these. And one of them, number two, it's really right up there in the commandments. Number two is verse four. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness. Do you hear the similarity? God made us in his image after his likeness. You shall not make any image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. And he tells him basically, your consequences will be felt through the generations if you go toward idolatry. So what happens? Rather than being made in the image of God, we preferred to make images of the creation. We were to lead the creation into worship before God, but instead we received the worship from the creation and then started to worship it back. 
rather than using God's authority to rule the creation, we said, eh, we don't need that. We've got this. And when, when the image of God was a position that was now vacant because we rejected it, something had to rush in and fill that vacancy. We left our post. So what came in to fill it? We don't see it in the Bible yet. It'll become much clearer later. But a very sinister power lurking behind the scenes of creation came and assumed that role of authority so that we became slaves to this new authority. And idolatry was the gateway. When we made an image of creation, we rejected our role as the image of God. We directed all of that authority into the creation and said, here you go. Let's see what you can do with that. And the sinister powers had their heyday. The serpent was no longer just a serpent. As someone, many have already whispered, it became Satan, right? I'm not saying Satan was created by us. I'm saying his power and his ugliness became more pronounced when we surrendered our role as God's image bearers. Okay, so we see that God's very big on this in Exodus. Um, let's move on to 2 Kings. Now, this is going to really summarize 2 Kings chapter 17. Um, we did this a few months ago. This is going to really summarize the history of Israel. What did God say? Do not make any graven images or the likeness of any created thing. Okay, so what do you think they did? They made graven images in the likeness of created things, and they bowed down to them. So, guess what happened? They stayed free? No, if you've been listening, you would know. Breaking God's commands always, it feels like autonomy. Ah, I don't have to do what he says. But you learned that you, they were actually trying to keep us free. We break his commands, we go into slavery. So, 2 Kings 17, verse 6. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. That's the northern city of Israel. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah, on the harbor, the river of Gozen, and in the streets of the Medes. The northern kingdom of Israel loses their home. They become slaves to the Assyrians. A little over 100 years later, Jerusalem, the southern kingdom of Israel, is going to fall to the Babylonians. Why did this happen? 2 Kings 17, verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against Yahweh, their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. Now he's going to continue to explain this sin that they did in borrowing from the other nations. Verse 9, the people of Israel did secretly against Yahweh their God things that were not right, such as they built for themselves high places in all their towns. From watchtower to fortified city, they set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree, and there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did, whom Yahweh carried away before them. 
You might be like, what's up with the high places? Um, the secret places you go to do bad things that you don't want your parents to know about? <laughs> right? That's what, they, that's what they did so God wouldn't find out the high places. And there they built pillars, that, which is just a euphemism for the um, male body part that might resemble a pillar because sexual rights were initiated under these trees. That's what all that's saying. Verse, where did I leave off? Um, verse, middle of verse 11. And they did wicked things, provoking Yahweh to anger. Verse 12. And they served idols, of which Yahweh had said to them, you shall not do this. And yet Yahweh warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But, verse 14, they would not listen those prophets, man, they're just such negative people. But we're stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in Yahweh their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And that, to me, is the climax of it all. They went after false idols and became false. Now, I taught this before when we did 2 Kings 17. So it wouldn't hurt to hear it again. The word false is very close. It's the root word for the name Abel or Avel in Hebrew. Remember, Abel's name means vanity or a breath, vapor, because he lived a short life before Cain killed him. Well, the idols, they went after Abel idols and became Abel. Or in other words, as the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Avel, Avel, all is Avel. They, became, they went after Avel idols and became Avel. They became empty, a smoke, a wisp, a shadow of their previous glory when God made them in the image of his own likeness. He had his authority over creation, but now because they turned that upside down and began to worship the creation and make the creation the image of the God that they want, they became the emptiness. This is a far cry from the glory that God crowned them with. They became wisps. And now, don't we see why Paul picks up the exact phrasing he does in Romans 3.23 when he says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He made us with this glory, this rulership, but we've fallen short because we went after false gods and became false. We went after futile things and became futile. This is a far fall from the glory of the Creator. And so we see, Israel's accused of becoming like those things that they worshipped. So one more Old Testament passage. Go to Psalm. It's in the middle of the Bible. Psalms. 115. That's chapter 115. <coughs> Psalm 115 picks up on this. They worshipped these nothing gods and became nothing people. Psalm 115. By the way, they sang Psalm 115 whenever they celebrated Passover. It was considered an Exodus psalm, something that you sung to remember your liberty from slavery. Well, 
Look at this. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. That's what we should have been saying from the beginning. Don't give glory to us. Give it to God. But we took it. And now this is where we are. So verse 2, why should the nation say, where is their God? Right? Because there's no idol of our God. We're meant to be the image of him. So Israel was never to have an image of their God. So the other nation's like, <laughs> where's your God? We can't see him. So the answer in verse 3 is, well, our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. <laughs> and as Isaiah would say, your God has to be nailed down to a pedestal and fed food. Verse 4, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. That phrase the New Testament picks up. Um, remember when Stephen is before the Sanhedrin and they stone him in Acts chapter 7? He's the first Christian to be killed for his faith. Do you remember what he tells those religious leaders? He says, look, you guys have been worshiping your own version of God. He didn't say idolatry, but he's basically alluding to it. Your own idol in that building, the temple, which was made with human hands. Do you see Stephen's point? Made with human hands. They know exactly what that phrase comes from. Idols are made with human hands. And so they get really angry, and they kill him. Paul also, in Ephesians chapter 2, is trying to tell the Jews, settle down, you're not better Christians than the Gentiles, just because they came from pagan, idolatrous backgrounds. Um, you Jews, by the way, have your own idols you're just not willing to acknowledge. It's located middle of the body between the legs. He says this. He says, you have, you've been glorifying your circumcision, which is made with human hands. Paul is sarcastic and a little crass there, isn't he? Yeah, so, yeah, the New Testament picks up this phrase a few times. And that's why Hebrews says, we're waiting for the New Jerusalem, which is made without hands. I can't remember. It's, I think it's in Hebrews 10 or 9, but it is there. So, verse 4, the idols, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Just think of Smurf. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. They worshipped nothing gods and became nothing. Psalm 115 verse 8. Those who make them become like them and all who trust in them. And so what are they like? We just read. <laughs> Mouths but don't speak. Eyes but don't see. So you become as dense and dull as an idol. You, you will never rise above that which you worship. Think about that. You will never rise above or become more than that which you worship. So one of the reasons God doesn't like idolatry is because it actually dehumanizes us. If to be human is to be made in the image of God, then to be worshiping something in the image of creation is to become something less than human. 
And notice just the, the ideas of like deafness, blindness, not able to walk. Paul picks up on this too in the New Testament when he says, the Gentiles are futile in their thinking. They walk about in darkness, right? He talks about, not these exact words, but the paralysis of those who worship other gods. And remember, I started in Genesis 1 verse 1 because I wanted us to see how the beginning was. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was without form and it was empty. And then what was over the surface of the deep? Darkness. Those who worship idols not only become less than human, but become the pre-created state of the earth. They walk about in darkness, blind, when God's the one who turned on the lights. And so here we see Psalm 115 showing us I hate to use this word because of its connotation, but you have to understand I'm not being scientific with this. The word uh, devolution, right? If evolution, non-scientifically, if evolution refers to something that's progressing forward, devolution is regressing backward. And that's where the humans who don't worship God are going. They're toward idolatry. They're going less and less um, they're looking less and less like humans. Remember, um, oh, this is coming off the top of my head, so forgive me. It's either Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar. One of the Babylonian kings actually starts to live like a wild ox. Do you remember this? Because he didn't acknowledge the God of heaven. It's in Daniel. Read it. It's, it's fascinating. But that shows you where the human, human race goes when we don't worship the true God and we're stuck in idolatry. And so... Should you really be surprised where our nation's going? I mean, really, we're, we're becoming less and less human-like. Well, yeah, because that's what happens. So getting to the New Testament now, we're going to see this same thing. Go to Ephesians, please. Ephesians um, is in the you know, last eighth of your Bible. You always remember, go eat popcorn. That's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So if you find Galatians and Philippians, Ephesians is sandwiched between. Although I'm not sure a popcorn sandwich would be good. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You are a nobody, and you are doing whatever the prince of the power of the air wanted you to do. That's what Paul says about you before Christ. The prince of the power of the air. See, now we're getting a name. Something sinister behind the creation we elevated too high. There are powers that took advantage of us. Chapter 4. Remembering how idols can't do anything. Ephesians 4 verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. They worship idols, Gentiles. In the futility of their minds... They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to every 
uh, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Wow. And now, Romans chapter 1, icing on the cake for where the human condition has been led by idolatry. Romans 1 verse 21. Romans 1, 21. So you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. So if you find the Gospels, just keep going right a little bit, you'll find Romans. Romans 1, 21. For although they knew God, Paul's just referring to the whole lot of humankind. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The lights went out. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And verse 23, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That, Paul summarizes, is what happened in the fall. We exchanged our place with God, the glory He gave us over His creation, when we exchanged that in order to give the glory to creation. And we made images out of that. See what we're doing? If God made an image and gave it power over creation, we try to play God by making our own images. Oh, you can do that, God? We can do that too. Mm-hmm. We just remade the world, that's all. We unmade it. We made it worse. Which Paul will go into. Look at verse 24. So, idolatry leads to slavery, right? Look at 24. Therefore, God gave them up. Because we refuse to, li- to live with the authority of ruling with God over his creation, we had to become slaves to it then. That's the only other alternative. So God gave us up to it. Okay, fine. You want to worship the creation? It will be your God, and it will rule over you. So, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women that were cons- and were consumed with passions for one another. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, third time, God gave them up to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Wow, an inventor of evil? This is getting bad. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That is where idolatry has led us. All because we didn't want to share rulership with God. We wanted it all to ourselves. Friends, God's commands are not bondage. They are precisely the opposite. We all are slaves of something, which Romans will later on say in chapter 6. You're either a slave to unrighteousness or righteousness, But either way, no one has autonomy. Only some have authority and some have slavery. There's good news, though. It's not all bad. 
Oh, wait, no, one more bad news, then it's good news. So, one more bad news. Go to 1 Corinthians, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This is where it all comes together. And our minds are blown that idolatry is not just a little rock and wood that people bow down to. So, idolatry... Uh, idolatry. 1 Corinthians. I saw the one and thought I... Idolatry. 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8, 4. It's right after Romans, I should have said. It's just the next book over. So, 1 Corinthians 8, 4. Therefore... As to the eating of food offered to idols. Now, in the early church, this was a huge debate. I mean, we've got our debates. Theirs was, can I eat meat if it was burnt on an altar to an idol? And Paul has a lot to say about it. It's not relevant for our night tonight. But this is what I want you to see. Um, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that... Now, the ESV puts this in quotes, which is helpful, because he's quoting Isaiah here. A verse we read last week. We know that, quote, an idol has no real existence. And that, quote, that is no God, or there is no God but one. He's citing Isaiah, which we read last night, or week. When Isaiah made light of idolatry, Paul is saying the same thing. Look, 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 regarding this whole issue that's dividing the church, we know that idols are nothing. They're futile. They're emptiness. They're smurfs. They can't do or say anything. Why are you afraid of them? You're giving them power. They have none on their own. On one hand, they're no big deal. But on the other hand, in chapter 10, verse 14, they're a very big deal. And here's where we see why. So yes, the little statue is nothing. But lurking behind the statue, lurking behind that which we made images of and gave our power to, is something far scarier. 1 Corinthians 10.14 Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And skip down to verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No! Right? They're powerless. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. Why do I take idolatry seriously? Because I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? That question Paul asks, because remember Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, he said, look, if you make these images, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He's, He's hinting at that commandment here when he says, should we provoke God to jealousy? So idolatry is far more sinister than just the human saying, eh, the creation's so wonderful. Let's be flower children and, you know, hug trees or whatever. Like, you know, there's that. But that, Paul and the Bible say, that's nothing. The creation itself is not evil. In fact, Romans 8 says the creation's yearning for our liberation so it can be liberated. The creation isn't evil, but what happened is when we took creation out of its safe place underneath our stewardship and our authority, when we took it out of that security, it became subject to the other powers lurking in the dark places. 
That's what Paul's saying, is demons took advantage of these things. And so now, idolatry in the Old Testament was largely described as something that's so silly, like it's just wood and stone. Why would you associate with that? In the New Testament, it becomes, yeah, yeah, wood and stone, that's kindergarten stuff. It's actually Satan's way into human lives. It's the way he's had a choke grip over the world is idolatry. So idolatry is no longer just images it's philosophies, it's ways of life, it's places where, it's what we call spiritual warfare. That's why, you know, we've moved past idols to a degree. I mean, you can talk about the icons of the brands people are loyal to as an idol in a way. Just look at sports, you know, it's kind of similar. <laughs> Temples and an icon and you know, all that stuff. But anyways, beside the point, uh, Outside of that, we do have, yeah, some of it's an American Idol, but outside of that, <laughs> I guess it says it all. But outside of that, we have idols lurking in much scarier places that are less obvious. And that's what Paul's warning us against and what the New Testament warns us against. So we're going clo- to go toward the good news and then wrap it up um, and see that this darkness, as terrible as it is, it's defeated. So, please, find or listen to Colossians chapter 1. This is some of like the most spine-tingling stuff, at least when you put it in this kind of context. Colossians 1, you know this passage if you've studied the New Testament, because it's just, it leaves an impression on you. It's a powerful passage but maybe you've not looked and lifted out this single phrase. So we'll start in Colossians 1.13 so you get some context. Colossians 1.13, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's idolatry. The domain. There's another power there, and we were subjected to it. The domain of darkness. And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now verse 15. He, Jesus, he's talking about, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of God. We were made in it. We spoiled it because we gave it away. Jesus came to earth to be and restore the image of God. So what would you expect to see him do if he had that rule over creation? Probably rule creation. So he walked on water. No big deal. He only healed lepers and got rid of their diseases. No big deal. He helped the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. No big deal. By the way, those were the very things that were said about idols, right? All those being reversed. The power of darkness and idolatry was shattered when the true image of God came to earth. And he also cast demons out, just to make it abundantly clear who's in charge. Yeah, that's good news. The image of God has come. Now, it's for us to realize you want to join this You want to become part of this image of God. So just to kind of put into more perspective what Jesus has done, um, I'm going to 
1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's one of the reasons he came as the image of God. Everything you've taken advantage of because of my human's failure, boom, kicked him. Destroy that. Because the image of God is restored. The temple is cleansed, which is the whole world now. It's, it's the body of Christ. Um, Colossians 2, verse 15. You're there, so I hope you didn't turn anywhere. Colossians 2, verse 15. Look at this great one. Um, it's, it's, in context, it's talking about what happened when Jesus was on the cross. Colossians 2.15 says, On the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. This is the dark powers that took our place. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So, he came to destroy the works of the devil. The image of God came and said, you powers that took the place of my humans, be gone. And, and the imagery here is that he's, he's chained them and he's dragging them around as Caesar would do when he rode triumphant into Rome with all of the slaves of the nations that he conquered in tow. Christ has the dark powers in tow and says, I invaded the realm of darkness to bring you into the realm of light as Colossians 1.13 had said. And so then, um, Ephesians chapter 1, I told you to be turning, so if you're tired by now, I get it, just listen. But Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, we're in the middle of a very long prayer of Paul's, but it's worth just jumping into the middle for. Ephesians 1, verse 20, um, he wants us to know the power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's the resurrection, the ascension he's talking about. I want you to know the power of that. Now, here's the power that we don't often think about behind Easter, the resurrection ascension. That same power um, that uh, raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places See them so high that it was far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He put him high above every rule, authority, power, and dominion, above every name that is named. There's no power higher than that place of which Christ has been put, because he is the image of of God. And in case you're doubting that these powers are the dark ones that were out there taking our place, he makes it abundantly clear where we started in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. You were dead. This is the very next verse. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. His butt has been kicked. Because Christ was raised. He took their death and their power upon himself. He let the forces of darkness do their worst to him to turn their attention away from us, to do their worst to him. He absorbed it, then rose from the dead, breaking their power, saying, you did your worst, I broke it, I won, and then was ascended to the throne so that the image of God can once again be co-ruling with the Father. What does that mean for us? Wonderful news. It means, like Ephesians chapter 4, 
says that we get to put off our old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, 423, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. There's a nod to Jesus as the image of God, but also Romans 8, 29. Um, now I'm the one that's like frantically turning, so it's okay. You can just watch me do that. 8:29. For we start in 8.28 because you know that one. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become, I'm sorry, to be conformed to the image of his son. Jesus is the image of God restored. And now the New Testament is telling us that if we worship him if we follow him we are going to be restored to that image again little by little taking on that likeness which is what second corinthians says second corinthians 3 verse 18 we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Little by little, we are once again being recrafted, reshaped, recarved into the image of God. And just to make it abundantly clear, Colossians says this as well. It's Colossians 3.10. It talks about putting off your old self like Ephesians did. Colossians 3, 9 will start. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So, where are we going? We're going to be in the image of God again. We're going to be like Christ. And, as 1 Corinthians fifteen forty nine says... Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's referring to our future resurrection. Christ was resurrected. So yeah, if we're going to be restored to the image of God, we'll be resurrected too. He's now in charge. We get to rule with him again. Not as him, but with him. That's what Jesus means when he invites people to the kingdom of God. That's the rule of God. We once lived in that in Eden, the rule of God, ruling with him. We were once again, he's out there saying, I am now the image of God restored. Come back to the rule of God, the kingdom of God. And so now the whole New Testament is saying that those who are following him are being reformed, reconformed into the image of God. That's beautiful, powerful stuff. And so that's why I'm going to end with this verse here. Well, I'm going to end, yeah, almost end. Well, you have to bring all this to its final implication, right? Revelation chapter 5, of course, Revelation, right? It's climatic. It hints at over and over, but says very clearly here. Revelation 5, 9. This is after Jesus the Lamb takes a mysterious scroll from the one on the throne. This is authority. The king on the throne takes the scroll, and they sang a new song saying, 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That is what the kingdom of God is. Us, once again, restored to the image of God, and ruling with him over the works of his hands. So, you can also look at Revelation 21 and 22 and just get excited. But, how we need to walk this out, we need to do the opposite of our desire for autonomy. We want self-rule, self-governance. That's on the extreme. Over here is what the New Testament is calling us to do in a variety of ways and a variety of words. But at the bottom of it, it's all saying, worship Jesus the Christ as the Son of God who defeated death, rose again, and ascended to his right hand and is king over the cosmos. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. Everything, I'm paraphrasing, but it says everything on the earth, under the earth, and in the heavens. Like everything. He's Lord over it all. The New Testament is calling us repeatedly to worship him, to give our loyalty to him, to put our trust in him, to put our dependence in him. In other words, what it's all doing is it's saying we need to treat Jesus like the tree of life if we want to be remade in the image of God. We need to keep coming to him in faith, independence, leaning on him and surrendering, not fighting for autonomy, but actually letting go of all of our autonomy. Surrendering is worship. It's why sometimes we raise our hands and we're saying, I give up. I give it all to you. Because that's where our truest power is, is when we are with God and fully with God. We were never created to have autonomy. That's when the dark forces and the rulers and the authorities and all those words Paul uses, those sinister dark beings ruled by the devil, that's when they come alongside and wreak havoc. When we turn to the tree of knowledge and say, I got this. I'll figure this out. I'll do it my way. Just in this one little area. One little tree, one little bite, right? See how sneaky idolatry can be? I mean, see, on one hand, we read the Old Testament like, oh, I don't have a smurf in my house. Pastor Brandon should burn that thing anyways. Like, it's not that obvious anymore because Satan is far too clever and he's far more sinister and dark and he's trying to get behind us and say, whoa, whoa, worship, shit, yeah, that's a Sunday thing. You did your time. Worship was five songs long. You sang your heart out. You did your deed. Now come over here and have a little autonomy. Shh, that's the serpent. That's the serpent saying, come eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't go there. This is why we take communion, which we're going to do in a moment. And it's like the tree of life. It's the act of, I'm going to worship, I'm going to be dependent on, I'm not going to be autonomous, I'm going to rely upon Christ who broke the powers that have enslaved me, and I'm going to be loyal to him. That's, that's what we're looking for. So, look, I, have a, I had a slew of like seven, eight, nine things that could be idolatrous in our society, but I, I kind of feel like at this point, I think you're seeing the biblical vision, and God will tell you where the idols are. Are there ideologies? Are there human-made systems, things made with hands? Or are there actual objects in the creation 
a substance, a person, a feeling. A, there's so many varieties that the devil can get into your life with. We just need to worship and surrender. And you are never more powerful than when you are leaning upon God as the king. Because his kingdom has no end. Let's pray.